Welcome to the Trailblazing in Color podcast, where we talk to change makers and innovators focused on upending systems not designed by or for them to create a more inclusive and equitable world. I'm your host, Sarah Chapman Becerra. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Today's guest is Desiree Aspiris. Desiree is an educator, therapist, and facilitator focused on integrating creativity, mindfulness, and embodied practices into her arenas of mental health, higher education, and social justice. Desiree believes inspiring individuals to find hope, meaning, and courage is essential to creating change, and her training and practice in meditation and contemplative approaches over the last decade inspires her to share these practices to support both personal and social transformation. Desiree is also the founder of Deep Breath Network, a diverse and welcoming space to share these practices with changemakers around the globe. She currently teaches at University of San Diego and Bastyr University, California. Today's conversation, we get into it. We talk about her journey to integrating mindfulness and contemplative practices into her work as an educator and therapist. We also look at what it means to reject the established and especially conditioned norms, in Desiree's case in higher education, and making the choice to authentically show up differently. And she also shares her perspectives on how we go about not replicating oppressive systems in the spaces we occupy, and especially those where we have some level of power. Desiree and I have been all up in each other's lives for more than a decade. We met as neighbors when our firstborns were babies, and now they are 12 and 13. Desiree and I have been a part of each other's ups and downs, of which there have been many of both, and ultimately evolution. She is one of my closest friends and confidants and she inspires and empowers me regularly. I hope after our conversation today, you'll find yourself feeling similarly. Let's get right into it. Thank you for being here. All right. Welcome, Desiree, to the Trailblazing in Color podcast. I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited to be here. Well, my first question is, how's your neck doing? My neck is not doing so great in times of increased um, stress and productivity. My neck gets gets a thing. My neck shoulder area gets tense. So I need to take care of myself this weekend and get that taken care of. How about your neck, Sarah? (laughs) (laughs) My neck is also not doing well. (laughs) Maybe that's what we need to change this podcast. To be called. How is your neck? How is your today? Because it might be a direct correlation <laughs> with how hard you've been working, how much or little you've been taking care of yourself. But we work on that and we recognize the signs for when it's happening. But yeah, Desiree and I were talking earlier. I messed up my neck <laughs> just sleeping in a different bed than I normally sleep in and... It's really affected my whole week. And and then it is yes. your body's reminder to slow down. Yes, the body keeps the score, as that one book tells us. So it's telling us something, and we need to take care of it and respond. 
into, well, as we stretch our necks, let's get into our conversation. Uh, and this is a good reminder to everyone, you know, we have to take care of ourselves and it's something we're going to talk about a lot, I'm sure, in this conversation. But let's start with just a little more about you. And I know I mentioned in the introduction that we've known each other for more than 11 years. Oh my gosh, has it been that long? It's been a very long time. And we've also, I like to say, had a front row seat to each other's evolution. And the evolution continues. Yes, it does. <laughs> so why don't you tell me about your evolution? And we can go as far back as you'd like into shaping experiences that have led you to where you are today. Oh my gosh, that is a very big question. I know. <laughs> Shaping experiences, the first one that comes to mind. So let me set the stage a little bit. Growing up, I was super popular, kind of awkward most of the time, didn't have a lot of confidence. And in high school, because of a requirement, I needed to get extra credits in physical education but my school schedule was full. So I had to take a dance class at Mesa College where I landed in a hip hop class taught by uh, founder of uh, Culture Shop, Angie Bunch. And from that class onward, the next few years, as I learned how to dance hip hop and become a hip hop dancer, I credit that time period and learning how to dance in really giving me confidence and some level of feeling my own fierceness. Um, so I would say that was one of the, the, the first things that came to mind when you asked that question. Um, fast forward through college and moving and trying out different careers. Lots of things have shaped me, but I think one of the things that's standing out to me right now is just some of the challenging situations and the different kinds of careers that I've been in that really gave me those signals to jump off those ships and try something different. So that's just kind of a broad sweep of um, some of the career choices I've made jumping from here to there because each piece didn't feel right from working in the, the music industry and then the nonprofit world, um, the performing arts sector. Um, and then finally getting to where I am right now, which is being a marriage and family therapist and also a graduate level, master's level teacher. And then also most recently becoming a mindfulness facilitator. So all, a lot of the different things I've been interested in have kind of woven themselves together to where I am right now. And the other interwoven piece through a lot of that I know is social justice. Yes. And so even thinking about each of these buckets, and we don't even have to call it that, this interconnectedness of how you show up and serve in this world, how did your relationship with social justice and activism form? Ooh, another great question. I would say one of the threads that is maintained throughout the beginning is my wanting to be of service to others. And that has been inspired in me by my maternal grandmother, who was a doctor in the Philippines and chose to serve the poor in her community for 
essentially her whole life. And so that's been an inspiration for me and just wanting to be of service to others. But that really showed up in my work in the nonprofit world, in, in fundraising, in the performing arts world. That has been something that drew me to being in those nonprofit roles. Um, but I wouldn't say I was ever involved in, in my community or, or engaged in any kind of social justice work at that time. But that desire to be of service to others kind of drew me to mental health and wanting to be a therapist. And so that was really kind of a narrowing down of a way that I could serve other people, which I, which is very fulfilling work for me. And now that I'm able to teach counsel counseling students and therapy students, I feel like that is just another way that I can also continue to serve and, and teach and inspire. And so that's kind of what's been the thread that's brought me closer and closer and closer to social justice to get back to your original question and and just finally coming to this place where if I want to continue to be of service and, and deepen that, then of, of course you have to end up caring about social justice and, and doing meaningful things toward equality, peace, equity, everything that this world needs more of. And I think what's so interesting about so many of these journeys, and especially yours, in terms of coming to activism, coming towards being activated, it doesn't look like a straight line. And we talk about this a mm -hmm. lot in terms of like the span of our growth and our own development into what am I passionate about? But more importantly, what do I value and what is my belief system mm -hmm. and how can I contribute to that body of work in terms of making the world a better place? So I love how every step and it doesn't feel like in the, that in the moment every yeah. step is one <laughs> closer to discovering that about yourself and how your contributions can make the highest impact mm -hmm. and so now your contributions are making high impact in different spaces some of the conversations that you and i have behind the scenes late nights just kind of catching <laughs> up every time we come together i learn something more about how we can apply a social justice lens to every space that we serve in and every space yes. that we occupy. Mm -hmm. Hey, if you are enjoying the show, be sure you subscribe and join our community at trailblazingincolor.com where we share resources, connect you with other amazing trailblazers in our trailblazer circles and amplify our collective power. Hope we see you there. Okay, back to the show. And I know that was a journey coming to that in higher education, especially these graduate level students that you're facilitating deeper conversations with. What was that journey like for you in terms of, okay, now I have this wrapped audience. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes a wrapped audience. I mean, they're paying to be there, so <laughs> they should pay attention. But, you know, we've all, we've all, uh, had our education experiences in yes, different yes, we have. And we've also, most of us hopefully have had an educator that's inspired us and really left a mark. Mm -hmm. 
I'm sure that influenced how you wanted to show up. But tell us a little bit about your journey to bringing and infusing this work into a higher education space. Ooh, very juicy question. How have I brought all of this into the higher education space? Well, it's certainly been a process. And I would say a parallel process between my continuing journey with mindfulness practice, contemplative practices, and really learning how to sit still with and be with all the stuff that's going on in my my brain and in my body, you know, some of which belongs to me and some which does not. And, and untangling that has been a process. And that process was really influenced a lot by starting to teach a few years ago. I've wanted to teach for a really long time. Whenever I, I was in a classroom during graduate school, when I was in a classroom being taught by someone who was clearly inspired by their work, I always thought, oh, that this is a really cool thing to see and that I get to learn from this person. Maybe I could do that someday. And so that's been a thought in my mind for a long time. So finally, getting the opportunity to begin to teach in these spaces, that's kind of at the front of my mind. Like, what is the essential takeaway that I want these students to leave with? That's like the question that I'm always thinking about. And that is... I want to model being inspired by this work and also being committed to approaching it in the way that we need to with a social justice lens, with thinking about how do we not replicate the oppressive systems in the therapy room, in their workspaces, in their professional and personal relationships, like all of it, that those things matter. Mm. Starting with the end in mind and not just starting with this curriculum that you need to follow. And yes, that's important. And there's things you have to imbibe into how the course unfolds. But really, what do I want them to walk away knowing or having mindset shifts around? And how can I then reinforce the behavior change that that necessitates and create It's like this space of cultivating new norms and new habits a semester and yeah they'll learn some things along the way about the material but they're also going to learn a lot more about themselves and where those blind spots may be absolutely and um it reminded me to answer the other half of your question i was talking about a parallel process and so my own exploration of that is continuing to shape even not even what i teach or how I teach, but just how I'm showing up in front of the classroom as more of myself and not someone who feels the constraints of the rigidity around the norms of how I'm supposed to show up in order to gain respect. Mm. Like I, I have the skills, I have the knowledge, I can just be myself. And so that's, been a part of all of this too. And I'm seeing and hearing feedback that that's helpful for people to see and to be around. Mm -hmm. 
And that power in noticing that they're noticing and this idea that we never know who's watching and just letting that information sit there for a while. And then five, 10 years later, I'm sure you've had this experience <laughs> where it's like, oh, I don't even remember saying that. And that has stuck with you all this time. Right. Mm-hmm. You don't know what they're paying attention to and what in that moment of their lives they need to hear that they'll come back yes. and say, whoa. Mm-hmm. And so... This role as professor, educator, as mentor, and also the idea of the importance of mentorship and having a mentor, especially if you're from a historically underrepresented, historically excluded community, what are some of the ways in which those looking and seeking someone in their lives to be that mentor for them? What should they know going into this journey? And then on the flip side, the role of mentors in this space. And and it's such a important and high impact, but also high vulnerability role for the mentee to engage in this relationship. So let's just talk about it. (laughs) Let's talk about it. There's a lot to talk about right here. I'm feeling activated. (laughs) Well, the first thing I want to say is that I feel like the mentoring relationship, whether it's in the workplace or in informal settings or in academia, that these are relationships that we don't talk about enough and highlight enough in terms of the power and privilege dynamics that exist that people are not attuning to and these are sites where like great harm and exploitation and abuse can happen so you know on the extreme end but it's just a place that I think continues to remain interrogated and explored more Um, and so that's the first thing I want to (laughs) say and let me just say you're right in terms of your work is you're in this higher end sector, this therapy sector, and seeing some some things coming out as far as trends of mentorship. And it's definitely something I'm seeing in the corporate sector. Mm-hmm. Everyone's pushing for mentorship and everyone's pushing for reverse mentorship. Yes. And rarely have I seen any part of that strategy that is how do you make sure that the mentors do no harm? Right. And that is, I think that's a concern for both of us, but especially in terms of what you're seeing and recommending, what would you say? Yes. So uh, this is such a great topic. So uh, a couple things in terms of what I'm recommending here and just broad strokes, we could have a whole thing on just this topic. For mentees, I would be just discerning in who you would approach to be your mentor and be uh, thinking about, is this a person that you can trust, that you have confidence in, that you think will be able to respond to uh, questions, challenges that you would be able to be vulnerable with? Um, Because I think uh, that's not really top of mind often for us when we're we're looking for a mentor or if we we come upon one, 
we're just really excited, right? That we, we've met this person and they're interested in us and they want to give us some support. And we need to be careful about uh, kind of remembering where we are in that power dynamic and that we might feel more pressure to, to, to volunteer for something or to take on additional responsibilities or burdens because we're just excited to be uh, partnered with someone who is trying to support us professionally or academically. Um, so just being thoughtful like we would with all our relationships, hopefully. And then for mentors, I think we really have to be uh, clear about our goals and intentions as we're stepping into this role uh, and paying attention to how our social location and our different identities uh, might influence our relationship with that person. Uh, because I think, and this will be my final word on this, uh, I think if you know you are a person committed to practicing social justice, being an anti-racist, you know, fighting oppression, then you also need to be thoughtful about not replicating those dynamics in, in your mentor role. Um, it happens so often. I mean, if you, you Google uh, mentor relationships that are, you know, abusive or harmful or exploitative, you will see so many stories that come up. So, and people aren't being held accountable either. Um, and so I would also say, folks, if you have colleagues that are mentors that you see aren't, maybe could be more thoughtful about how they're approaching that role, that's a place where you can step up as a colleague and maybe say something. Yeah, it's such a, <laughs> it's such a high risk relationship if it's not held with the utmost of care. Mm -hmm. And to your point, there is not a lot of, if any, accountability or ways to monitor that relationship, especially if it's in in an organizational environment mm -hmm. where the employer has a responsibility to yes. uphold the safety of their team members. And so it's it's risky. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> to go into creating any sort of a mentorship program or even engaging in a relationship without having done this work in yourself uh, as a mentor and being reflective as a mentee as you seek that out. Because, yeah, mm -hmm. you're right. We're excited when we find someone interested in investing their time in us. What? And especially coming from a historically excluded community, mm -hmm. we're going to see a lot more of that be challenging if we're not paying attention. Absolutely. So I did want to ask about your own identities and the communities to which you belong. How has that infused itself in your work and, and your own lived experiences? How do you bring those? All together. All together. Well, they have been, as I mentioned earlier, it seems like they are all weaving themselves together. So I have found that my previous time spent working as a fundraiser in the performing arts world has woven its way into some of my social justice work now with the Printmakers Against Racism project, where I invited printmakers from all over the world to create art and prints and sell them to raise money to support racial justice. So I feel like that's a thread that's kind of come together that I, that was surprising to me. 
I've also been a printmaker, a book artist. So that is another thread that's come together with the fundraising, with the, the Printmakers Against Racism project. I feel like all of that has woven itself nicely together. And then with my going into the mental health field and becoming a therapist, and now also teaching future counselors and therapists, I think that that still connects me to being of service in a way that feels very authentic to how I want to move through the world. And so those are some of those threads. And and the social justice piece and all my work worlds piece have come together now, especially since I've started teaching um, classes on topics like diversity, anti-racism. It's really come to the forefront to me that all of these things are interconnected. Teaching and modeling behavior and ways of thinking for the next generation is important. And showing up authentically to support clients, therapy clients one-on-one is important. And doing what I can to support social justice causes is, is also important. And I'm finding now that in order to authentically show up in one area, I have to show up authentically in all of the areas. So hard, so hard, right? <laughs> Such a part of part of this work is how do we show up as we really are in all the spaces. And so And especially in the spaces we're new to. Right. I I don't know the norms here. I don't know the rules. I'm just trying to be like everyone else. I think a related issue is walking into a new space and knowing very well what those norms are in terms of how you're supposed to behave, how you're supposed to look, how you're supposed to speak, how you're supposed to present yourself. We're like, we can be highly attuned to those norms. And what I found recently in some new spaces is, okay, I'm aware of these norms and I don't want to abide by them anymore. And how do I work to shift how I'm approaching showing up in class, sharing what I'm thinking internally about something that we're, we're discussing, like how I'm like actually responding as a person, not in the persona of your instructor and... For me, that's been actually a very difficult thing to do because we're all conditioned and we have our training of how we're supposed to be in certain spaces. And so the work has really been, how do I change that or just do a little bit of a different move than I normally would have? Because I've also realized it just takes so much energy to do that thing that fits into what we perceive as the norms. And I've got a lot of stuff going on. You know, <laughs> I, I do a lot of things. That's some extra energy I don't need to waste. <laughs> Which now that I'm saying that out loud seems like a very strong statement. But it's uh, just, I'm just getting more grounded and I can know what I know and I can be professional and I can be in this role and inspire and teach and show up in my own way. And so that's been a journey. Mm-hmm. And it's just solely by you showing up, solely by you giving others permission through your own choice of I'm going to show up as myself. What has been the impact of that, would you say? Oh, wow. It's not quantifiable. 
Maybe anecdotally. A few things that have maybe validated for me that this is a um, also an offering. (laughs) Just some of the feedback I've gotten unsolicited, like towards the end of a class or maybe midway through a class or with someone I've worked with, is just that others are noticing. And, you know, when you hear feedback like, oh, I just appreciate your presence, that you made space to talk to us during the break or after class, you know, made an, an effort. And hearing feedback in real time in class where I kind of name what I'm thinking about and how I am doing something different. <laughs> like naming those things out loud and, and hearing feedback from uh, people. Maybe it's not everyone, but uh, you know, a significant portion of people that just how I showed up matters is one thing. And you mentioned representation, and I think it is also still so important. I know I'm one of the few people of color teaching in our program, our therapy program, and in the counseling program. And sometimes I don't always think about that, but when I hear from students, wow, you're my first instructor who is a person of color, not in graduate school, but just my first ever, instructor ever. Mm. It's it's making me appreciate, like on a daily basis, that showing up as myself in this body <laughs> and how it looks and how it moves through the world matters. So. It matters. It's necessary. And yeah, like we were saying before, you never know who's watching, and actually everyone's watching, which is part of this heightened visibility that can be yes. added and undue pressure for mm-hmm. people of color, especially, any, and people from these marginalized groups. And and it's it adds this level of and layer of responsibility. And mm-hmm. yet, it sounds like, and I know it's ever-evolving, it sounds <laughs> like you're growing into a healthier relationship with yourself and what that means and what it means to preserve yourself along the way without giving too much you know so yes so so much that you're doing now has to do with these mindfulness practices and these Mm -hmm. centering practices to stay in your body to stay in what's happening now but having a, a better more intentional or conscious relationship with it yes talk a little bit about that Oh my goodness. I know. We can, we have so many big topics. So today. many big topics. All the best topics. So mindfulness and all of this work and sustaining ourselves and being in our body. Again, it's it's all interconnected and it all ends up being the same thing. It feels like as I've deepened my uh, mindfulness practice and meditation practice, especially within the past six months, it has been hard to tear myself away from the day and to commit to 10 minutes, half an hour, maybe an hour of sitting still with myself, which is essentially a big part of what these mindfulness practices or how do we slow down? How do we sit down? How do we just 
be with ourselves. Who are we when we're not running around, right? Oof. Oof. Lots of big questions. And so just that commitment to slowing down and to stop is also a commitment to myself and to this work. And I talk about this too with students when we're talking about how do we sustain ourselves as mental health professionals in this field? Like we're on the front line sometimes all day. We're, we're hearing about the lives and the suffering of other people. So how do we take care of ourselves, right? Exact same question. And my, my answer, there's this great um, quote I have in, in one of my presentations on self-care. First of all, self-care is a professional competency for mm -hmm. all of us who are engaged in the light of fire, wherever we are, it is a professional competency that, I mean, if, you know, if we're going to use the productivity culture, cultural lens here, and you need that in order to take care of yourself and be more productive, there's that argument or that angle, but also that Self-care is an ethical imperative because taking care of ourselves reduces the likelihood of impairment. And we also need fun and rest and nourishment and, and pleasure in order to be fully alive and full of human beings and like a part of this world that we're trying to make change in. So it's, it's all interrelated. So for me, the practice of mindfulness and of being in nature, going outside, running, taking care of my physical body and my soul and my spirit. It's required if we want to be committed to like a lifetime of doing this work. Yeah. It's really the only way. And for people like me who don't <laughs> necessarily always do a good job of considering a professional competency, or at least I'm working through my own relationship with being versus doing mm -hmm. and to talk about it in a way that is really the only way that we can do this work over the course of a lifetime, which is what's necessary. But also, I think if we have a good relationship with it, it will be fulfilling for the mm -hmm. long term. It will mm -hmm. fulfill us and sustain us as long as we sustain ourselves. Yes. And it's not an easy kind of boundary to set with other people either. And I think that is what can be on your own relationship with. It can be difficult because now you're saying no to a lot more things or, mm -hmm. and it's all for the greater good, but people don't necessarily interpret it that way right away. Right. It's such a challenge. And it reminds me of something I heard another teacher talk about recently but that everything we do and choose has a cost. And so what are we choosing? And another teacher I'm reminded of mentions that it, choosing is more important than doing. So meaning when you're doing things, choosing to do things or choosing to not do things, as long as you're in choice, mm. that is a great foundation. <laughs> Which feels a little like liberation. Ooh. Oh, choice. It's always based on choice. Yes. That's what we want. 
that yeah, is what choice we want. And we can get there. We are getting there. It's yeah. we're we're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, in everything, in all that you're doing, working on, creating, what are you most excited about right now? Oh, so many good questions. I am excited about one is that I will be teaching the human diversity and family therapy course at University of San Diego in the fall for the first time. This is the graduate program that I went through. And that thought I had when I was in the program of, I think this is something that I want to do someday, was when I was in the human diversity class. So it feels a little full circle for me. So that is something I'm, I'm really excited about. Say the name of the class one more time. Human Diversity in Family Therapy. Ooh, human diversity. Yes. Okay. Yes. And we're we're going to get at it. Uh, <laughs> the second thing I'm really excited about is, and I've talked to you about this a little bit, perhaps, I am launching a new mindfulness community called Deep Breath Network. And along with that launch, I'm also working on a course that will be available for people that I think a lot of us need right now called Transforming Discomfort. So it's a course about how do we, what is discomfort? How has it been useful for us? How is it not useful for us? How do we learn how to better tolerate it and transform it so that we can, again, we need to choice, uh, make better choices that are aligned with what's most important to us. And so that is all launching in the next month. Stay tuned for that. Uh, but those are two of the things I'm really excited about right now. Oh my gosh, you can't see me dancing in my seat, but I am. <laughs> because this idea of transforming discomfort, we talk all the time about mm -hmm. just get comfortable being uncomfortable. Nobody Easy. tells you how or how it's going to <laughs> feel in your body when you are more uncomfortable than you've ever been and how do you still wade through those waters and get to the other side, we need this. So I will share with everyone what the full details are on how they can find it out. But let's wrap up. We always wrap up with our conversation with a few quick takes. Quick and takes. so quick takes time. <laughs> Even though they're quick takes, they're not really <laughs> just casual <laughs> questions. Let's throw the <laughs> Who trailblazed the past for you, Desiree? Ooh. Well, I do have to say, rather than trailblaze, I guess, the main influences for me in all of this work that I'm doing and that continue to be guideposts for me are my both my grandmothers. And so my grandmother on my dad's side Faustina Aspiras. She worked for years at a casino and was fired right before she was due to retire and lost her retirement benefits and pension when I was very young. But it was that first kernel of, wait, this seems unfair. Why isn't anyone doing anything about it? Mm -hmm. um, that began to light some of those questions for me. And then my other grandmother, who was a doctor in the Philippines, who was very well respected in her community and devoted her life trying to serve other people. 
And so I, I think of them often and they, they both keep me inspired and keep the light lit for me. So, mm-hmm. Well, your light is very bright. So <laughs> that, that it's just so wonderful to hear. Who are your influences? What shaped you? It makes, it really sets us on a path that we don't even realize until don't. decades later. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Well, I know you're an avid reader like me, which is why this is one of my favorite questions. Mm-hmm. What is a book you've read that changed the way you think about other people and or the world? Ooh. So I just, so I'll mention two books because I. You're such a real breaker. I've just started reading, finally, um, Bill Hooks' book, Teaching Community. And it is a book which I feel like I wished I'd have read when I started teaching because what I'm reading in it now just kind of validates the kind of person I want to be in the classroom. So that's been one. And then um, Ibram Kendi's How to Be Anti-Racist, a number of chapters in there really kind of opened up my insights. And one off the top of my head in particular is the chapter on space and how spaces are sometimes um, stigmatized, elevated, racialized. And because of the way we view those spaces, how they are then over-resourced or under-resourced and what implications that has for our neighborhoods, our communities, our schools and so much in the way uh, the system operates. So that those have been two that are top of mind for me. Mm, thank you for that. And you also, I'm reading now, also recommended pleasure activism. I just started that way. It's so much. <laughs> Very. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, so many books that we, we just kind of take what ideas resonate or what ideas are important in that time, which is why sometimes I read books like this over and over again. I know you do too. And then it totally changes mindsets. And so that's why this question is so resonant with me because I get to learn Mm -hmm. how other people transformed along the way and what has helped shape them. I know it's people. It's it's also authorship and what what are we reading? Yes. Last question. Okay. Where can people find you and follow your work? People can find me on my website, deepbreathnetwork.org, O-R-G, and also on my Instagram account, Deep Breath Network. And yeah, I'm looking forward to connecting with people and, and sharing some more updates on the stuff I'm rolling out. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. Thank you, Desiree. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast.